0: The world is happening
2: on Wall Street. Economic
0: indicators. Who knows
2: where this is going to end up? To understand
1: the economy, you have to understand human nature. Welcome to the David McWilliams podcast. Hope all is well with you. This week we're going to talk about why the war on drugs has been a monumental failure and we need to change it. I'm joined by my old mate, John Davis. How are you? And in Hackney over in London by Finn Midlachlan. How are you, Finn?
0: What's the correct, lads? How are you? All good. 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 All good.
1: Before we begin, I want to just mention that this episode is brought to you thanks to our Patreon supporters. And to help support the content, and perhaps more importantly, to unlock exclusive comment and scenes and footage and episodes, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. John, I see where the Canadian has made us mint tulips. Have you ever had one of those
2: before? No, I haven't. And th- the problem is that they're going down a storm. They're gorgeous.
1: Well, I'm not sure that's the problem. I think that's they're supposed to be. <laughs> no, it's a problem for me. Well, it, we, we, we,
2: Hopefully we'll get to the end of this podcast. We,
1: we will, we will. We'll, you know, it's funny. I'll tell you a story about mint tulips. About 10 years ago, I was asked to do a gig in a place called Louisville, Kentucky. I didn't even know Kentucky, right? the capital of Kentucky. It's called Louisville. Well, I've just learned that now. It's you know who's from Louisville, Muhammad Ali. Oh right, Cassius Clay. Right, with an Irish grandmother. Harking back to our Black Irish discussion many couple of weeks ago, but Louisville, strange town, but it is the home of the Kentucky Derby, and I wouldn't know the arse end of a horse. Yeah, me too. But they said, let's go to the Kentucky Derby, and it is. Quite an extraordinary yeah, event.
2: Yeah, it's a massive event. Massive, it?
1: massive, massive. And Hunter S. Thompson, yeah, the man who yeah, was yeah, probably used to an afternoon on the tiles more than most. Indeed. Quoted, the great quote about the Kentucky Derby by Hunter S. Thompson is, the Kentucky Derby is depraved and decadent. And indeed it was. And <laughs> mint juleps is the drink of choice. Oh, is it? Yeah. Brilliant. Now, it's interesting. I had never been to the south of the states because Kentucky is in the south. It's a southern state, even yeah. though it, Kind of appears in sort of middle of the States, but it's the southern state. And of course, I had a couple of mint juleps and we were chatting away. And they're they are delicious. They're right? gorgeous. They're yeah. going
2: down a storm, as I say. Far
1: far like bourbon and all sorts of goods. It's bourbon and then kind of sugary stuff that makes it all palatable.
2: Yeah. And lots uh, of mint. There's a big bush of there's mint. A
1: mint the whole mint thing's going on. And of course, I'm looking at the horses, not really caring. But it's a bit like the Grand National. You have to have a bet. So I'm upstairs. In this kind of swanky VIP place because I was doing this work for the, yeah. for the
2: for this corporate. That's the only place to go is the VIP. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Anyway, so I decided to go down to have a bet. And I have a couple of bets. And I'm chatting away. And I start chatting to a couple of locals who happen to be African-Americans. All right. And I say to them, come on up. I'm up at this VIP place. Come on up. We'll have a few drinks. And they came up with me. And it was... Really shocking for me because what? the white people I was with, the sort of good old boys from the south, let's just say they weren't the friendliest, really to these guests. And I was really When was this, by the way? This was about two thousand and seven, two thousand six, two thousand quite a, quite a while ago. Yeah. It was unusual for me because I'd never seen it, I didn't expect it. it so explicit. It was subtle. It was basically we're not gonna hang out with you now that you're hanging out with these people. Oh,
2: okay. It was really, really strange. So
1: what was their reaction,
2: the African-Americans' reaction?
1: Um, Were they used to this,
2: or did they kind of...
1: Now it was interesting. Maybe because I was European, Irish, whatever, I asked them, because I was quite shocked by it. I said, is Mm -hmm. this something that happens? And they said, yeah, it happens all the time. It's really, really a strange, strange manifestation of something that's very deep in the United States that we don't see.
2: Yeah. And we don't have. And don't appreciate well, the ingrainedness of, of that racism in, in the southern well, states. Well, it's,
1: it's, it's kind of casual sort of racism. And I think we what we don't understand is the legacy of slavery and how that has profoundly framed the discussion on race in the United States, which doesn't seem to be from what you see in Ferguson and what you see in all these areas of the state it doesn't seem to be getting much better. Right. Just kind of kind of mad but
2: yeah. That's part of the American maybe, maybe we shouldn't be surprised. Well at it's that.
1: interesting and it's really related to the discussion I want to have is that two things. One is the mint julep loads and loads of booze and bourbon, Kentucky, whatever is a legal drug. Yeah. Celebrated, offered, made available, taxed and totally legitimate. Yeah. Nobody goes to jail over booze. On the other hand, these African Americans that I was talking to, now I didn't ask them about it, but I would suspect, given the figures that we know about it, that some of their mates, cousins, brothers are in jail over illegal drugs. One drug, booze, totally legal, totally fine, as destructive. The other drugs, like weed or coke or whatever you have it, illegal, leading to an extraordinary level of incarceration. Not just that, but yep. that alone in the United States amongst black people, in the main. yeah, The vast majority of people in prison for drug offences are black or Latino. So that's what I want to discuss.
2: Yeah, the war on drugs, Mark, I mean, that's that kicked off when in the 80s because we've seen all the drug addicts and the damage it does to society and families and all the rest. But I'm curious about, number one, What's your take on it? Number two, the economics of it. And number three, is there a solution to this as you see it?
1: Well, we start in the economics. The economics are very, very clear on this, is that it has been a monumental failure. We're going to go to Finn for some stats in a minute. Yeah. But it all struck me, the other day I was walking down, about 10 o'clock in the morning, Abbey Street, beside the Abbey Theatre and Marlborough Street. That junction in Dublin, broad daylight, is a heroin bazaar. Now, I first noticed this years ago. I did a one-man show in the Abbey, and I used to go into the Abbey quite early. And I'd noticed something, which was that the addicts, heroin addicts, would line up in a quite an orderly queue at around 10 o'clock in the morning. And two dealers, and this happens every single day. You can go and see it yourself. Mm-hmm. Two dealers arrive, one with a bag of wraps of heroin, mm-hmm. and the other with a plastic bag for the cash. So lads would hand over the cash. There are many lads and girls would so hand over the cash. They'd give them out the wraps and then the addicts would go down maybe the boardwalk or into a couple of the lanes around the yeah. back of Marble Street and bang up. The dealer then would go and get more gear from a bigger dealer somewhere in town and the same grindingly depressing miserable Vista plays out all the time in Central Dublin. And I watched this and I thought what is the point of all this? What is the point of making when I see an addict on the street strung out? Yeah. There are tragic. many things that person is, but they're not a criminal. Yeah. They are addicted. They are unhealthy. They need help, but they're not criminals. And we have gone along with this extraordinary war on drugs, which has done what every single other effort of prohibition has done. Once you criminalize, Something that's addictive, whether it's booze and the mafia, yeah. Al Capone and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And JFK's father, actually, who became <laughs> subsequently the American ambassador really? to, oh yeah, oh, wow. became the American ambassador to Britain. Yeah. Okay. Started as a bootlegger. Jeez, a bootlegger. Geez, I never knew that. Bootlegger is a nice term for a dealer. Yeah. Okay. So once you make something criminal, two things happen a price goes up. And the type of people who get into the business, the quality of the person goes down. And you become a criminal enterprise. And then that criminal enterprise, because it's driven by the high prices, which are very high profits, if you can stay in business and not get caught, you end up making a fortune. Therefore, you embolden and enrich the gangs and they become more violent, protecting their own patch. This is what economics tells us. And then ultimately you get to a situation where Irish drug dealers are much more afraid of legality than incarceration. Yeah. What really terrifies them is this thing being made legal because then the price would fall dramatically, the purity would change dramatically, and they're out of business. Yeah. But as long as we decide that drug taking is illegal and criminal, you begin the process whereby you have the hutch Kinahan gang type feuds And then various mini-feuds, which are as violent, we just don't hear about them. Yeah, of course. And then you've got to think, okay, look at human nature. Whatever reason it is, people like to get off their heads. You go back to history, okay, you go back thousands of years, you find evidence of people smoking weed, you find evidence of people doing opium, you find evidence of Pizarro, the uh, Spanish conquistador, was amazed at how quick the Incas could run. (laughs) Oh, he was. He said, How the hell can they get messages to their king so quickly? Because they chew the cocoa leaf, they get a bit high, and exactly as cocaine does, it makes you much more energetic for a while. Yeah. So this has been wow. the case. Look, it's been the case since you and I scored I remember a five spot of hash in Dunleary Shopping Center yes. on the night of our intercert results night. <laughs> Remember that? And, I do. <laughs> and Peter was walking along and he had the, he had the do you remember he had the actual little wrap of the five spot hash yeah. and he met his ma and he put it in his mouth and he couldn't talk to her. She yeah. kept saying, How many, he, Until he swallowed it. He says, How many honours did you get and you're leaving? So you're Peter. <laughs> we're going to speak. We're going to speak. <laughs> and, then, and then he swallowed
2: our yeah. five spot of hash. Uh, so, he had a great night that night. <laughs> yeah. And he was stoned and we were not. <laughs> <laughs> I like, had like, to roll up
1: peat and smoke peat. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm saying is like, is, like it's been around for years. It, so, so let me so, ask you. So it's human nature. And once we criminalize it, John, this is my point. We begin the process that leads to mass incarceration. About 15 years ago, I went in to teach a little bit of economics in Mount Joy. Yes, they I asked, do remember They that. asked me to yep. come in Talking about economics, talking about doing TV, talking about current affairs. So in the classroom were lots of guys in Mountjoy who really wanted to get on. They wanted to do the Leaving Cert, they wanted to get on. Yeah, yeah. They said, you know, I'm not into this. Now, we sat there and I would say 100% of the people in the class were in there. How many of them were in the class? About 40. Oh, right. I'd say all of them. Like we didn't do a head count, but yeah, the yeah. conversation was flowing. We're in there maybe for maybe you should have done a big can
2: in case any of them had skied.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but we're in there for drug offences and kind of petty drug offences. Yeah, you know, yeah. robbery, small scale criminality, all that sort of stuff. And I just remember thinking to myself, "This is bullshit." Yeah, these are not endemically violent people. They are addicts. They have a heroin problem, but ultimately putting them in Mountjoy criminalising them
2: yeah. doesn't seem to, me, to they make were sense. And they're more exposed, I suppose, at, at, at exposed, this, to, 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 to criminality in in Mountjoy's. They call it the, the University for Criminals. But let me ask you this. The whole war on drugs, perhaps that was focused in the wrong place. Have you ever heard of a guy called Bruce Alexander? No.
0: Nope.
2: Bruce Alexander was a psychologist, professor of psychology in a Canadian university. And There was an old experiment that was done in the 60s on opium, and it became the basis for a lot of government policy on drugs and the war on drugs. And what it was, in short, basically, it was an experiment on rats. And it was all these rats in cages, in solitary confinement, essentially. And they gave them two bottles of water. One was pure water. The other water was laced with with heroin. And the rat came up, and he tasted the the water, nice, nice, Takes the heroin water. Nice. Kept going back to the heroin water. And became a junkie. And killed himself, essentially. And the media jumped on this as, there is proof. There is proof of how dangerous drugs are. You take drugs, you will get addicted, and you will die. Boom. And that was the basis of the whole war on drugs thing. Or that came along later. This guy, Bruce Alexander, saw this... Experiment. I thought, nah, I'm not happy with that. That doesn't quite fit. So what he and his colleagues did, I think it was in the 70s, is he sent up another experiment, the same experiment with the single rat in a cage. And then he set up this thing called a rat park, which was basically a nice little area, cordoned off area with loads of rats and loads of toys. And so the rat was playing around, was socializing, was having lots of sex and all that kind of stuff. And they had the same two bottles of water. And what happened? They went for the pure water. And very few of them tried, well, they all tried the heroin water and veered away from it. But they all stuck with the pure water and they had a happy life. Now, he came to the conclusion that it wasn't to do with the addictiveness of heroin it was to do with the environment and what he came to conclusion was that like the rat in a a single rat in a cage he's caged there's no mental stimulation or physical stimulation and if you look at the vast majority of drug addicts do tend to come from deprived areas where there's a lack of purpose and a lack of you know there's no way out in terms of whether it's um, so, they've
1: no job, they've no
2: prospect. Ex- exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, that was the conclusion he came to. Now, obviously, what came back was yeah, but rats are different to humans. And indeed, they are. And while he couldn't carry out the same experiment with humans, he started going back and looking through history and um, uh, various different anthropological sources. And what he came to realize then was
0: it was. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com/wondersuite. A lot can happen in the next three years. like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance? United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. It's
2: pretty much the same thing that happened to both some of the soldiers in Vietnam and the Native American Indians. Because what happened with, particularly with the Native Americans, they were basically reefed off their land, stuck in reservations. So their whole culture was destroyed and their whole identity was affected. And they, well, it, it, drugs wasn't the... Booze, is their the, problem, the, booze was their problem, isn't it? Booze was their thing. And everyone said Native Americans can't handle alcohol and stuff. It was nothing to do with that. It was the fact that they had no purpose. Their whole identity was was, uh, taken away from them. So they sought solace in alcohol. And in the Vietnam, in the 60s, people were really worried because something like 20, 25% of American soldiers in Vietnam were taking heroin and taking lots of heroin. And that story broke in the media and there was uproar. Oh my God, when all the troops come back, they're going to be like zombies walking around our streets and blah, 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 blah. That didn't happen. 95% of those soldiers that were on heroin came back. They didn't even go to rehab or anything. They just came off because they were taken out of the jungle where they were going to die. You know, they were like caged They were put back into normal life. they were put back in with their families and connection. It was all about connection. So what your man, Bruce Alexander, says, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's actually connection and purpose.
1: Wow. Well, I mean, that, I think, that's, I'd never, I'd never heard of that, the the rap park before. I mean, that stands to reason. It's always struck me living in this town, you know, which has a big heroin problem. Yeah. Well, it's had a heroin problem since we were kids. Uh, I'm not talking about just Dunleary. I'm talking about Dublin itself. But the first thing is the gateway drug to all drugs, I always thought was not weed, but cigarettes. I didn't know anybody.
2: I was who act- told it was stag, actually.
1: <laughs> stag. It was stag. And, but if you think about it, right, I always thought the gateway drug was quite interesting. because It, was, it yeah. was a legal drug. But Sorry, I'm not making we light were, of it. But when we were kids, had like you know, it was advertised and all that. And then people smoked weed, and then people in you know, our set of friends and broader set of friends maybe went on to do harder drugs or whatever and did coke and did speed. But the vast, vast majority of people that played around, we'd kind of grew out of it. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, though, is that if you criminalise, it's what you've said is it's human nature, we have socialisation, we have people with a better purpose, all those things help enormously to get you on the right track off booze or off drugs or whatever. But, and this is what I'd like to talk to Finn about, if you look at the criminalization of illegal drugs. The objective was to stop consumption. It was to stop drugs being taken. The question I want to put to Finn is, let's have a look at the statistics and let's see, Finn, what has actually happened.
0: Stanford stats, Finn. Oh God. Just uh, The war on drugs Hmm. essentially has been a supply side war rather than necessarily on possession. Explain that to me. Yeah. So I'll give you the top line stats first. So I guess so from the late 1980s to 2017, the U.S. government has spent around $1.5 trillion on the war on drugs. So over that same period, so from 1971, which is two years before the creation of the DEA, um, and when Nixon declared the war on drugs, to 2007. So over that period, the rate of death from drug overdoses per 100,000 has increased by a factor of 10. Wow. So drug overdoses are actually, they're increasing exponentially, the rate of uh, death from drug overdoses. So another study then from it was published in Science Just for Christmas there. So they analyzed nearly six hundred thousand unintentional drug overdoses over a thirty eight year period. So they found that the overdose death rate has grown exponentially and it doubles about every nine years going back to nineteen seventy nine.
1: So, so Finn, th- can I interrupt you that so this means that the drugs are becoming more pure, not less pure. And stronger, yeah, sure. not less
0: so, not, not weaker. So that that's actually something that happens. So when you implement total prohibition on anything, so whether that's drugs or whether that's alcohol, or whatever, while consumption decreases somewhat, the harm that's done to users and to society more broadly actually increases greatly. So one one way of looking at that is um, and some of the research suggests this is that total prohibition actually does lead to an increase in potency. So if you think about it like there's a fixed cost to evading the law and to getting drugs into a country. So if you're paying that fixed cost regardless, it makes more sense to you as a supplier to increase the potency of each batch.
1: Wow. So that's and interesting. An... So let me hold you there. So that makes sense. So the economics is that if you actually decide to ban, that the actual potency of the drugs will go through the roof.
0: Sure. And it, I mean, another thing is that it also shrinks the price differential between more potent and less potent drugs. So if you're you know if you're an addict surely you're going to go for the more potent stuff anyways and as the price decreases in relative terms it make, it only makes more sense and i mean you saw these same things when they were during the prohibition on alcohol earlier in the century so you saw the price of hard spirits and liquor decreasing relative to beer and there was huge increases in consumption to the or consumption of these liquors so you see things like moonshine and gin going through the roof back then and it's these same dynamics that are at play when you look at the war on drugs. So the war on drugs, I mean, it's essentially a supply side war. By that, I mean that the DEA and we well, say the US government and any government in general that's taking this uh, strategy, they're concerned with cracking down on supply and distribution more so than petty possession charges. I mean, obviously, you cited some crime stats earlier, and that's there's a huge problem in the United States, particularly with whatever Black and Hispanic communities being targeted for that. But at its core, a supply-side war essentially acts like a tax that's being placed on drug suppliers. So it increases the cost of bringing drugs to market. And, you know, as in virtually, as in any market, if you're putting in a supply-side war like that, the outcome is higher prices and a smaller quantity supplied.
1: So, Finn, give me a sense of, A, the amount the increase in prices as a result of making drugs illegal and a sense of whether or not in America, and I presume it's going to be the same here, the Americans have the statistics, what proportion of the drugs destined for America have been stopped by the war on drugs? So first the price and then the success of the actual policy itself.
0: Yeah, sure sure thing. So on on the price, I mean, look, when you're dealing with this stuff, there's obviously caveats around the quality of any data you're dealing with and the assumptions you have to make, but... A guy called David Henderson. So he wrote a paper looking at Latin America. And what he did, he, so he estimated that if the same markups applied to cocaine, we'll say, as applied to coffee, which, you know, would be roughly accurate if you assume cocaine legalization. So if, under those circumstances, he estimates that you would see cocaine's price in the U.S. fall by around 97%. Wow. So that's it. Which is huge. That's it. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's, that's all assuming you need to know. now... That's assuming there's a Starbucks for cocaine or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But but the, the stats are huge. Um, and then you, you mentioned so what proportion of these drugs are actually being stopped. Again, the latest data I have on that, between 2000 and 2010, so raw seizures of opium increased by more than 12,000%. To put that another way, the amount of opium seized increased um, in kilograms was 126 times what it was in 1990 and 2010.
1: So they're, they're seizing a
0: lot? Yeah, more or less. Okay. If, if you, in raw terms, a lot, yeah.
1: Okay, so let's, let's, let's stand back. So you have prices going up. You therefore have extraordinary profit being made by the drug gangs that can stay in business. Mm-hmm. This yeah. attracts in other gangs who want part of that business. This therefore causes the reaction on the existing gangs, which is extreme violence. All the time, the foot soldiers are petty criminals all around, and the consumption of drugs, although we think it may have fallen vis-a-vis what it would be if they were absolutely legal, is still ubiquitous. I mean, Dublin, on a Friday night, are lines outside Jax's of fellas going in to do lines with Charlie, right? Mm -hmm. There's yokes everywhere, people are smoking weed all the time, and you're seeing the criminalization and mass incarceration. So Mount Joy, as I said, is full of people, yeah. petty, petty drug things. The whole thing has failed.
2: But it's the, 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 the whole socioeconomic side of that. So based on the Rat Park experiment, that, that addresses one side of the drug, drug problem. Deprivation, unemployment, lack of purpose, all that kind of stuff. Then there are the kind of the middle class people who are the weekend drug abusers, who the so-called recreational recreational drugs. So, so they're the guys who are, you know, it's just for you know, just for, kicks. To, just for just kicks, for kicks.
1: This is what I'm saying, this is just nothing for criminal kicks. about it. Yeah. But of course, it
2: is. But it's criminal. Yes, it is criminal. But that's a that's a different case altogether. And then in America, we have what they're calling the opioid crisis, which is a different thing altogether. So they are all different aspects. Of economics, there's an economic argument for each of those elements. Like the the opioid crisis was brought on over the last twenty years, thirty years by the pharmaceutical companies, essentially pushing. they were the dealers pushing opioid drugs, painkillers. They're pushing fentanyl and diamorphine, and all those, the purest of the drugs. Two little old ladies with with hip replacements, and they get hooked on drugs and it's been pushed on them by pharmacy companies, VAGPs. GPs. And then once their hip is is good again or, you know, whatever ail- ailment it has, it's kind of a bit too late. So these are, look, there's two things going on here. Yes, Finn.
0: Yeah, just just to say, as John was saying there, I mean, a lot of this was in medicine in the, US, in the States. There was a turn towards treating pain, which wasn't there previously. So in the 90s, doctors and GPs realised and they were they were kind of, it was kind of institutionalizing them that they should actually be treating pain in their patients more so than they had been so again they started uh, issuing these prescriptions for these drugs more laxly and i think what you see now is obviously people people are prescribed them but once they come off them they're addicted and heroin becomes cheaper so that's, you know what i mean
1: that's it so heroin becomes the drug of last resort for people who are already yeah The addicts become more addicted, but more egregiously. The addict is treated as a criminal, not as a sick person. They're sick. This is a hospital issue.
2: Yeah, and it's ironic that if you go back to the Rat Park example, that when we criminalize drug addicts, that we're caging them again. The solitary rat cage. What's that solitary rat trying to do? He's trying to get off his head because he's got no purpose, no identity and nothing to live for. So that's the relief. That's his escape. So it solves nothing. But like, what do you think is a solution or a way forward? There is no solution to this, but a a way forward. I think
1: you're you're absolutely right right about the Rat Park idea. You know, I smoked hash when I was a teenager. I had more going on in my life, thankfully. I grew out of it. I actually grew out of it. I don't smoke weed anymore at all, right? Mm. But if you look at what we have done, We have criminalized drug taking. So when you criminalize drug taking, four things happen. One, the price goes through the roof. Once the price goes through the roof, on the supply side, nastier gangs get into the business. Mm -hmm. Those nasty gangs do incredibly violent acts to protect their turf because the profits are huge. On the consumption side, the addict needs to come up with more and more cash. Therefore, they begin to rob. Therefore, the price to the stake goes to the roof because we need more security. And therefore, they end up in prison when they are not criminals. They are more addicts. Now, what about doing exactly what America did with booze and prohibition? They said, look, this is nonsense. We'll introduce it. We'll legalize it. We'll tax it. Imagine doing the same with all drugs. Then you tax drugs, you use that money to set up proper rehabilitation centres for the addicts to take them off drugs so you have a proper holistic operation which recognises, one, that certain people take drugs and can't get off them, that two, those addicts need help, and that three, encouraging criminal gangs. is what we're doing. We're actually encouraging criminality is an absolutely ludicrous way forward. I actually think, John, 60, 70 years, people will look back at our generation and say, did they actually do that? Did they actually create these gangs? Did they create the violence? Did they create the glamour? Did they get young kids from bad areas to think, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be a drug dealer and I'm going to be a criminal. People will say they were off their heads. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content which you can access via Patreon. Caroline Camp. people are talking about a new Cold War between China and America. Maybe 2019 is almost like one of those big moments in history, like 1945, when things totally change and relationships change. And we know what the West is thinking, but we don't know what Chinese people, and particularly young Chinese people are thinking. So when you look out from Beijing, what are you seeing?
0: Well, in China, people are actually talking about American politics and politics in the Europe, especially right now, Brexit.
1: So does the average Chinese person know what's happening in Hong Kong?
0: Not really. And my journalist friends in Guangdong province, they went to the street and talked to people. They know nothing about it.
1: So what you're saying to me is that China can control the internet. If you enjoyed that, you can hear the full episode and much more by joining us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. See ya.